there's a paper airplane here. So that's pretty exciting. John the Baptist is an important figure in Mark's gospel. Mark begins his whole gospel, you might remember, by writing the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And then he starts to talk about John the Baptist. John's story is the beginning of Jesus' story. I think we'll find today, now the second time which Mark draws our attention to John the Baptist, that John's story continues to be the beginning of Jesus' story. As we sang just a little while earlier, it's all about you, Jesus. So we'll discover together today how this story too is all about Jesus. But before we get into that, let's get ourselves situated. Today, we're really going to be focusing on what's happening with Herod and with John the Baptist. If you call our church home, I hope you've been joining us in the Mark Challenge and you've read this whole chapter already. But in case you haven't, or if this isn't your church home and so you're not reading along with us, we heard together just now how Jesus sends out his 12 disciples to go and with authority to cast out impure spirits, to minister and to heal, to announce the coming of the kingdom. And then immediately following this story of Herod and John the Baptist is when the disciples return to Jesus, sharing all that they'd said, taught, and done. And so surrounding the story of Herod is another complete story, and this is buried in the middle of it, seemingly unrelated. Apparently, a quick history lesson and some information about how Jesus was being received. But in reality, all of this is intricately connected. Mark begins this connection by saying that Herod had heard about this. Now, what this is remains a little unclear. Perhaps Herod had heard of Jesus' ministry or heard about the ministry of Jesus' disciples. But whatever the case, word has reached Herod's court. Jesus is gaining the attention not only of the religious elite in Jerusalem, but also of the political elite. Jesus' ministry matters not only to religious people in the temple, but to political people in the halls of power. I want to say that the ministry of the church today continues to have great political implications. If our devotion to Jesus is what it ought to be, then our following after Jesus should make those who are in the halls of power today, whether that be City Hall or the Ontario Legislature or indeed Parliament, and should make these people notice and pay attention. And this isn't about party. In fact, it's got nothing to do with party at all because none of our political parties want the full coming of God's kingdom. Rather, our work should make people in those places, no matter their party, notice what we do. It's not enough for us to be pious, righteous church people. It's not enough for us to be unengaged and without any impact in the greater realities of our society. Jesus' name becomes well known and Herod notices. John does his work faithfully and Herod is made to respond. And if we do our work in God's kingdom well, Jesus will become well known in our city. 
and Jesus will become well-known in this world. And the people who have power, like Herod, who may have illusions of their own grandeur or who may have deep, paranoid complexes, these people will also take notice. They will also likely respond. And so what we see in Herod's court among the people who speak of Jesus are three different responses to Jesus. And no longer are any of these responses that he's demon-possessed or he's out of his mind, as you might remember some of the thinking was back in Mark 3. Now there are new hypotheses, new theories. Perhaps Jesus is John the Baptist, resurrected. Or maybe he is Elijah. Or perhaps he is like one of the prophets of old. Strangely, it seems that Herod and those in his court hold a higher opinion about Jesus than the Pharisees do in Jerusalem, who should have been anticipating the ministry and work of the Messiah and ready to rejoice at the coming of the Christ, but instead plot his murder. In the same way, Herod's court also seems to have a higher opinion of Jesus than his own family and community does back in Nazareth, where Jesus was amazed by their lack of faith. It's odd that these people are more on the right track than these others who should know better. And so the possibilities they are debating and that they're considering are first rooted, that first observation that Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected, that's rooted in an observation that some people seem to be making about Jesus' ministry. They seem to be noticing that his ministry has the power of the age to come. They notice that resurrection must be a part of this story. This suggestion is almost startling in its accuracy while being so very off the mark. They're not completely wrong. There is the power of the age to come. Resurrection is a part of this story, but they've mislocated where that resurrection is. It's not of John the Baptist, but it will be of Jesus. John will be raised, but he will be raised with all who have gone before us at the final resurrection of the dead. And John's resurrection, like all resurrections that we now so deeply long for, is only possible because of the resurrection power which we will see in Christ. These people who hypothesize that Jesus is John also fail to recognize even the most basic facts of Jesus' ministry like that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist and so could not be John resurrected. John and Jesus were contemporaries and not alter egos of the same person. There's no Superman Clark Kent thing happening here. They've both been seen in the same place at the same time. Nevertheless, the people saying this are people who are longing for God's action in our world, who are expecting God to do something to bring about the age to come who know the importance of resurrection for bringing about the power of God's kingdom. But there are also people who've been watching for these things from such a distance, who've missed out on some of the very important details. But that's not the only theory. There's a second rumor whispered in the court that Jesus might be Elijah. The prophet Malachi records God's promise that Elijah would return before the day of the Lord. So in the Jewish context, this 
rumor, this hypothesis is actually the response of faith. These people are positing that Jesus is the person that God has promised, that God would soon be doing the very things which all people across many generations have longed for God to do. Some commentators even believe that this Elijah theory may have been offered by John's disciples. They know that John isn't Elijah, and they know that Jesus is very special. But they're still formed primarily by the expectation that Elijah's return will bring about the new age. Their faith is still a little bit at a distance, not yet fully grasping who Jesus is. Finally comes the suggestion that Jesus is like one of the prophets of old. The people who are saying this have heard the idea that Jesus might be Elijah, and that's scary. That's frightening because when Elijah comes, everything changes, and they don't really want everything to change. And so they're saying, no, he's not like Elijah. Not like Elijah who comes to bring about a new age, whose return heralds the apocalypse, the eschaton. Jesus must be just like all those other prophets who speak and act of God. A prophet and a long line of prophets who really were nothing to worry about. Nothing that threatens the status quo because we've handled prophets like these before. We know how to get rid of these sorts. Nothing's going to change in the end. So what does Herod think? Herod Antipas, who's the son of Herod the Great and brother of Herod Philip, as we heard, he hears these rumors, and his guilty mind takes up the assumption which has the gravest personal consequence to him. John must have come back to haunt him. Resurrection comes before judgment. Everybody knew this. And John's resurrection would certainly first mean judgment for the one who was responsible for his death, for Herod himself. It's almost by way of a parenthetical, an offhand comment that we find out that John has died. And this turns into a whole story, almost an aside about the death of John the Baptist. Mark wants to take the opportunity to take us back to help us understand why Herod should be so afraid, why his guess would be so wildly incorrect, and then to use John's death to teach us something important about the way of Jesus and the way of all who follow in Jesus' way. Quickly, we realize that Herod doesn't actually know very much about the people he governs. He, like some in his court, doesn't know that Jesus and John were contemporaries, and so his theory is fatally flawed. He ignores Jewish law as he marries his brother's wife while his brother remains alive. And history tells us that Herod established his Galilean capital, Tiberias, on top of an ancient cemetery. So Jews refused to settle there for fear of being ritually unclean. He didn't understand the people that he was governing at all. It seems that John tried to help him in this. At least he tried to help him understand one thing. John, as a prophet of God, denounced Herod's sin, calls attention to the fact that his marriage is immoral and illegal, offensive to God and those who follow the law. And John is imprisoned for this. 
Herodias, we're told, wants John dead, but Herod fears John as a holy man and will not kill him. Prison accomplishes the goal of silencing the prophet in the wider community without any of the nasty repercussions that killing him might have produced. In John, we are reminded that we must denounce evil wherever we see it, no matter the power of the one who does it. Herod is perplexed by the way John speaks. Perhaps he was surprised that anyone would dare speak to him in that way. And his response is not anger, but enjoyment. It's almost as if he's amused by this prophet who brings these concerns to him. The prophet's words do not cut to his heart how we might hope they may. Rather, Herod is content in his sin. But John has been faithful to God and called Herod to repentance, which is refused, and lands John in prison. Then Herod throws a party for his birthday. I feel like if there was a Bible trivia night and we asked, like, is there a birthday party in the Bible? We'd all say no. But there is. Herod throws himself a birthday party. And in this party, we see so many parallels to stories which we might be familiar with from the Old Testament. First, we are reminded of the story of Esther, who pleased King Xerxes to receive her request. But now Herodias' daughter is a shadow of Esther as she seeks to please the king for an unholy request. Herod's response is just like that of Xerxes, who offered Esther anything she wanted, even up to half of his kingdom. But in this, Xerxes was led to righteousness and saving God's people. And Herod is led to ruin, the killing of a prophet. Rather than Xerxes, Herod seems to be a shadow of the judge Jephthah, who foolishly promises an oath he does not need. And he makes that oath and lives to regret it. Herod did not want to kill John, and he was deeply grieved at this request. Then we see in Herodias a shadow, an image of Jezebel, who manipulates the king to the king and her own destruction. In 36 AD, the Nabataeans would overrun Herod's domain, and the people would interpret this action as the judgment of God, revenge for killing John the Baptist. Then in 39 AD, Herod would be exiled after asking Caesar Augustus for the title of king at Herodias' urging. She says, you should be called king. Ask Caesar. And Caesar fears that this Herod might be conspiring against him and exiles him. This birthday party is not only the place where John is executed. It's also the place where Herod's true nature is revealed and where the truth of our whole world is laid bare again. This story doesn't seem to really be about John. John doesn't do anything. He's imprisoned already by the time the action begins. This story is about Herod and Herodias and Herodias' daughter. It's a story about shame and grief and revenge. It displays folly and vice of every kind. It's about the pain that these things create in the world for innocent people. It's not a story about how John could have avoided this mess. John was faithful to God and called others to be faithful as well. 
This account shows the consequences of faithfulness to God in a world that remains in open rebellion against God's rule of justice and love. And you know what? As out of touch as Herod was, he was right about something. He was right that Jesus and John are quite similar. And in his actions, Herod brings upon John what will be Jesus' eventual fate. Remember what I said at the start, that John's story is the beginning of Jesus' story? Once again, we see that John has gone before Christ on this road. His death foreshadows Jesus' death. Mark goes to great efforts to draw the parallels for us clearly. As John is imprisoned by Herod, so Jesus is brought before Pilate, and in both instances we see a secular political figure who resists the call to execution. We see that both Herod and Pilate were amazed by the one who was their prisoner, and both of them in the end found their hand forced for the concern of others. Herod concerned for his guests and the crowd concern of Pilate. As Herodias schemes to kill John, so the Pharisees plot Jesus' murder. And in John and Jesus alike, one who is obedient to God is slaughtered because such obedience frustrates the ways of this world. And in both cases, the body of the slain is tenderly buried in a tomb by the followers. John makes the way for Christ. John makes the way for Christ, and Christ shows the way for us. Remember how this story is situated. Right after the disciples are sent out, and right before they return to Jesus, it's almost like death is part of their return to Jesus, like death will be part of our return to Jesus. This story is placed in such a way as to help us know that this is ultimately what happens to people who are faithful to God. The disciples are sent out. They proclaim that all should repent. They cast out many demons. They anoint with oil many who were sick and cure them. In short, they participate in the revealing of God's kingdom. And no sooner are we told this truth than we are shown the consequences for such actions. John goes before the Messiah, goes before Jesus, not only in ministry, but also in death. John, who proclaimed repentance but did no miracles, performed no signs or wonders, had this happen to him. How much more should the Christ who John announced expect? Indeed, how much more should these disciples expect? Or we, who now follow in that same way, expect for ourselves. This seems grim. What's the good news in this, you might ask? The good news is, as it has ever been, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the Son who came to be God with us died for us and was raised for us, and he ascended to the Father for us. That Christ has gone before us in these ways, and even as John prepared the way for Christ, so in Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus prepares the way for John and for all who follow in that same way. 
If we can find good news in the death of Jesus, if we can find hope in his resurrection, if we can believe that he ministers at the right hand of the Father even now, then we should rejoice that our lives might be conformed to his. We should think it very good news that we may suffer for the sake of love, even as he did, that we might die for the sake of justice, mercy, and love, even as he did, and in faith to know and believe that we will be raised for the sake of the Father's glory, even as he was. As Paul and Timothy write to the church in Philippi, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Or as the first, fourth century bishop of Constantinople, Chrysostom, said, in what way then was this just man harmed by this demise, demise, this violent death, these chains, this imprisonment? Who are those he did not set back on their feet, provided that they had a penitent disposition? Because of what he spoke, because of what he suffered, because of what he still proclaims in our own day, the same message he preached while he was living. Therefore, do not say, why was John allowed to die? For what occurred is not a death, but a crown, not an end, but the beginning of a greater life. Learn to think and live like a Christian. You will not only remain unharmed by these events, but you will reap the greatest benefits. Learn to live and think like a Christian. More than a story about Herod or the recounting of the death of John, this is a story about the cost of following Jesus, of being obedient to God in a world of excess, of sin which breeds more sin when it is acknowledged, of wealth, of lavish birthday parties that harm the innocent, of immoral sexual desire, and of oaths that are made and go too far. It's a story that begins to challenge us as Chrysostom's as Chrysostom said, to learn to think and to live like a Christian. That in living as Christ, we should anticipate we may face the same challenges which he faced, but not fear them when they come, because we know that in him we will be unharmed by those things, and we will reap the greatest benefits with him as he welcomes us into the kingdom which we have joyfully participated in revealing. Dear friends, John went before Christ, and Christ has gone before us so that we would have no cause to fear. Rather, this has been so that we might be encouraged even when the work is hard, even when the call to repent falls on deaf ears or when the powerful may oppose us, to know that we have been faithful to Christ, our Savior and our God, and that he has been and will be faithful to us to the very end. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We want to leave space for you to hear the Spirit speak to you. And so some questions to guide your reflections, your conversations perhaps at home, your prayers and your journaling. First, imagining that our call is like John's call. What is an evil that you might be uniquely positioned to name and call for an end to. Secondly, this challenges us all to learn to think and live like a Christian. 
And so how might that be true for us? How does this story challenge you, me, our church, to learn to live and think like a Christian? Finally, pray. Pray that you and all who follow Jesus might faithfully follow him, regardless of the cost. We'll leave a couple of minutes for these reflections and prayers.